0: Welcome to the Law & Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and editorial director of Law & Sport. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to leading figures from the business, legal and sports world about the current events and legal developments in the world of sport. In today's show, our guests include Graham Arthur of Ucanti Doping, and he'll be talking about the memorandum of understanding that's just been signed between Ucanti Doping and NHS Protect. Paul Green of Terry & Associates will be telling us about the Major League Baseball Biogenesis doping scandal. Daniel G of Phil Fisher Waterhouse provides some thoughts on the failed Malaga appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Leif Kafour of Lucentum Sports and Entertainment Law explains the recent legalisation of MMA in Canada. And Kevin Carpenter joins me to discuss the F1 Pirelli Mercedes tyre case and the rights and wrongs of banning a golfer for wearing the wrong shoes in golf. <laughs> So to start off I have Kevin Carpenter here with me and now Kevin, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the Formula One, Pirelli and Mercedes tyre case that's been going on. Uh, I was watching the Formula One at on the weekend and it seemed that people were already rushed to judgement uh, before there had been any tribunal. I'm not sure what your take on this is but uh, can you give us a bit of a background behind why people are so upset and uh, what's going to happen going forward.
1: Yeah, well, well, it certainly seems um, it seems though. Yeah, people have made the decision. The tribunal is going to take place on the twentieth of June um, in Paris at the uh, FIA, who are the world governing body of motorsport uh, tribunal, at their headquarters. That the what happened was between the um, uh, the Spanish Grand Prix and the Monaco Grand Prix, um, it it was revealed on the on the day of the Monaco Grand Prix that uh, Mercedes Formula One team had taken part in a tyre test with Pirelli who are the official suppliers to Formula One. Um, there's, there's been a lot of controversy about these tyres since they came into the sport um, a couple of years ago. Um, they've been asked to produce compounds of tyres which uh, wear out very quickly to make more exciting racing. Uh, but what, it, in a way, what it's actually done has made it very confusing for the fans. Um, and Mercedes, one of the teams who were suffering the most with this tyre degradation, um, and it was found they'd taken part in this test now, in-season testing for Formula One is very restricted for cost reasons and the rules say that you're not allowed to do in-season testing. Now, Pirelli argued that under the regulations they're allowed to try out new tyres as they um, attempt to vary the compounds of them. Um, but according to the regulations, they're only allowed to do this uh, with old cars. So you're not allowed to use this year's models and have to offer it to all the different teams in Formula One say would you like to take part in this test and if they say no that's fine but you have to make the offer and what seems to have happened is that mercedes have taken part in this in this test with a current car and there is now some debate as to whether pirelli did actually offer the chance to other teams and this is what's going to be decided um at the tribunal and and what made it worse in a way for for both sides was that they actually won the monaco grand prix and seemed to perform better on the tires at the at this weekend's Canadian Grand Prix as well, um, and people are starting to think they certainly got a competitive advantage from having these what some people are calling a secret secret test.
0: So, and and the timing of this was that it was three days after the Barcelona Grand Prix, and I believe that what the the the, the main purpose of the test was to test the 2014 tires. Um, and the argument is that. As well, that they at that same time they then tested the 2013 tyres. And as you rightly said, that they're allowed to they Paredes say that they're allowed to test uh, new compounds or new develop new tyres as they're being developed over the course of the season. Um, but previous tests, the teams have used old cars and not this season's cars.
1: That's right. And I think, um, I think one of the things with Formula One is there seems to be all the teams seem to constantly be looking to one another to get an advantage because of the amount of money that's in the, in the team championship or what's called the constructors' championship. And people are saying that if they are found uh, guilty of this, um, the drivers themselves won't be punished, but it's likely the team will be, um, be it with a, with a large points deduction or you know, they could be expelled from the championship altogether this year. And that has an incredibly large commercial impact. On, on the team itself, if that were to take place.
0: Well, thanks for that. And I, I believe before we go into the, uh, to our guests um, and their, their commentary, uh, you've got a rather amusing sports, well, what we consider anyway, a rather amusing sports law s- case.
1: Yeah, well I, well, I like to try and look at for some of the more weird and wonderful sort of sports legal case around the world. And one I came across this week, is, it was a sport close to my heart um, in in the golf world, um, and this this coming weekend, it's the U.S. Open at Merion Golf Club in America, which is one of the four major championships. Um, and during the qualifying for the tournament, um, in one of the tournaments, a two-time former winner of the of the event, Lee Jansen, um was actually disqualified um, for wearing metal spikes in his shoes. Now, this this kind of just brings to the fore how bizarre some of the rules of golf are and how unfair they can be
0: so so can you just explain um for for non-golfers why there is a problem with metal spikes
1: yeah so so metal spikes used to be worn all the time by by professional golfers in fact golfers at all levels but what what they do is they cause damage to to the course and particularly to the greens um, and there was a, apparently what happened was there was a local because in golf you have the rules of golf which is set by the Royal and Ancient Club and the United States Golf Association, but you then also have local rules for each individual course. And apparently before the tournament, before the qualifying tournament, there was an email sent out to all the players saying you're not allowed to wear metal spikes so you don't damage the course. Um, he didn't see this and then was uh, disqualified uh, when, he, when he'd when taken part in, uh, in one of his rounds.
0: And has he had a right to appeal?
1: Uh, he hasn't. No, the, the rules of golf are extremely strict, um, and even the local rules, um, I think in a lot of ways people see the penalties as quite draconian. So
0: the argument is then that the golf rules and regulations are, are difficult to understand, difficult to follow. Uh, they can lead to, to what would be deemed as unfair, on the, on the, on the face of it and at least, unfair um, situations or treatment of golfers. But what is what is the what is the solution? I guess the counter argument is that these strict rules have protected the game.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, I think if you look at the recent Tiger Woods situation, also at the U.S. Masters, which again showed he he dropped his ball when he hit it into the into the water. He dropped his ball back two two yards back from where he was before, not thinking he was doing anything wrong under the rules, and yet that made him a two shot penalty, got worldwide news, and then. Uh, I think he missed out by not many more than two shots. So that made a big difference to his championship. And, you know, there's any defence for professional golfers necessarily not to know the intricacies of their own rules of sport. But it is very punishing at times to the amateur golfer who, who doesn't have time to know all the intricate rules and can make mistakes. And it's very frustrating if you're playing against somebody who knows them very well and you make a rule infringement that you're not aware of.
0: Well, uh, Kevin, thank you very much for your time and your contribution. And uh, people can check out your articles and and your blog on lawinsport.com. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Paul Green, who is a US-based sports lawyer who protects the rights of athletes in disputes, including those charged with anti-doping offences. Paul has been recognized by Chambers USA and Super Lawyers as one of America's top sports lawyers. Last year, he successfully overturned a wrongful doping ban levied against an Egyptian athlete before the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Switzerland. Paul teaches law and sports at the University of Maine School of Law and lectures regularly on the topic. Hi, Paul. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me, Sean. Um,
0: I wondered if you could just explain what's going on at the moment in Major League Baseball and the Biogenesis case and some of the big names from baseball who are implicated in this.
2: Sure. Well, right now, it, there's a lot of rumor as to what will happen. Nobody really knows for sure. Um, there's been reports that the two main st- two of the major stars in baseball, Alex Rodriguez and Ryan Braun, are both going to be suspended for 100 games, or at least Major League Baseball will try to suspend them for 100 games each for their involvement uh, with Biogenesis and Tony Bosch and their apparent use of and purchase of performance-enhancing drugs from Tony Bosch. The other big name on there is Melky Cabrera who was already suspended last year for using testosterone. Um, the way the system works in Major League Baseball is a little bit different than the European CAS system. It is a closed system. It's not an open hearing. Major League Baseball and the Players Union collectively bargained this system, so it will not be an open hearing. It's, it's essentially a solo arbitrator who will oversee the hearing if either one of them challenges the decision to suspend them. Last year, Braun actually was the only player to prevail in such a hearing the first time he was charged with use of performance-enhancing drugs. Um, The basic claims are that um, they purchased from this gentleman in Miami and went forward and used PEDs for a period of time. Um, Of course, the guys denied it, but Major League Baseball sued Tony Bosch and Biogenesis claiming tortious interference, which is an American tort. And the the whole point of that suit was to be able to get subpoena power over him and others in his clinic. And they've actually done depositions down there already in Miami and apparently found out a lot of information that was under oath. So they seem to have a lot of evidence to move forward with to really make an attempt to um, do what would be historic, which is suspend a baseball player for 100 games that has never happened. Certainly, somebody of like Alex Rodriguez's or Ryan Braun's stature, both former made most valuable players in Major League Baseball. So that's where things stand right now. And again, nothing has been reported as official. What,
0: well, where does this leave us in terms of the the, the relationship between the Major League Baseball, the players, um, and sponsors? So if if Major League Baseball are successful in if they do take this up and, and sanction. These athletes what where, where does this lead the the relationship with the sponsors and 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 the reputation of baseball as a whole?
2: you know I don't expect it will change much in terms of the structure of the game, people coming into the game, the business of baseball. Most fans are already numb to this stuff. they've been hearing about alex Rodriguez use performance enhancing drugs for the last ten years, and nobody seems to care. I'm not sure if that's a, it's probably not a good thing that they don't, but I think um, it's just the reality of the situation that um, I don't expect much will happen. People are still cheering Ryan Braun in Milwaukee, even though he seems to have gotten off on a procedural technicality the first time.
0: And uh, it's interesting from, from a UK's perspective or European and a European perspective, in terms of the collective bargaining agreement. And they, they've recently um, just, was it last year or the year before they reached this, uh, they just agreed the last CBA?
2: Yes, it was within the last few years. It was very quietly done, too, while the other ones were were um, the, the big strikes and the, the lockouts and everything in and football and, and basketball. Baseball quietly redid their collective bargaining agreement while nobody was watching.
0: And and doping was one of the issues that was discussed at the time and introduced into the new CBA.
2: Right, and, and baseball has agreed to HGH testing. So it, there has been great strides made in um, the way – Major League Baseball tests and punishes athletes for use of PEDs in the last five years. You go back 10 years, there wasn't any testing. Back to 2003, there was an infamous list with 107 anonymous people who tested positive, and that was um, the the trial balloon for drug testing in baseball. So 10 years ago, there was no testing, and five years ago, uh, the system was nowhere near it is what it is today in terms of the possibility that a big star would get taken down like this. So they are making progress.
0: It, it sounds like it's going to be an interesting uh, to see how this pans out, because I know that the Major League Baseball um, Players Association is, 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 is going to be there uh, to defend the athletes quite vehemently, um, which, again, it just seems that the default from outside in, it seems like the default position is to give a strong representation for the players uh, regardless and fight any allegations whether or not there's any substance to them or not.
2: Right, I'm sure that they will try to uh impeach Mr. Bosch. There's already been reports that he tried to extort money from Alex Rodriguez, so who knows what will happen and and I'm an advocate of having the American sports pro sports go under the umbrella of a cast type system where it would be open and you wouldn't have closed hearings with um, decisions that have no written opinions. I think if if we had open arbitrations, it would make the system far better in the U S but that is not the system we have currently.
0: And do you think that's uh, going to happen anytime soon? I
2: I hope so. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I just had this discussion at the sports lawyers association with one of the um, one of the general counsels for one of the pro sports leagues. And I asked them if they would ever consider moving to a court of arbitration for sports system and, and explained that they have a New York office and I had, had hearings in New York before. And he looked at me and said, well, we're not going to have any Europeans oversee our sports disputes. So there you go. I mean, that's, that's sometimes the mindset.
0: Well, that was great to hear from Paul Green about the major league baseball biogenesis doping investigation. Now bringing things a little bit closer to home, Earlier I spoke with the Director of Legal at UK Anti-Doping Graham Arthur about the memorandum of understanding that they've just reached with the NHS Protect. Graham as Director of Legal at UK Anti-Doping is responsible for managing both the analytical and non-analytical results consistent with the World Anti-Doping Code and the UK Anti-Doping rules. Graham has acted as counsel to the International Paralympic Committee for the past five years in addition, he has worked with law enforcement agencies on intellectual property enforcement matters. Here's what Graham had to say about their new agreement with NHS Protect.
3: The, um, the, well, one of the uh, things that UK Antisopin wanted to do when it was set up was to enter into um, a number of relationships with law enforcement and similar bodies to help it uh, do its antidoping work in a smart and Intelligence focused way as possible. Um, NHS Protect provides a key avenue of information to UK Anti Doping when it comes to understanding more about the supply routes for prohibited substances, uh, particularly of those that are um, sourced um, illicitly or, or unlawfully via NHS sources. Um, it's very helpful for them to understand more about that, but it's equally it's, it's really helpful to, for us to understand a lot more about how prohibited substances find their way into the supply chain in the UK.
0: On a day-to-day basis, or for the future of anti-doping, how does this fit in with the with the the rest of intelligence gathering and sharing that that you have?
3: It's it's a key development um, in respect of the aims that that we have under the, the government's national anti-doping policy. Uh, the National Anti-Doping Policy envisages UK Anti-Doping having a series of relationships like this with bodies like NHS Protect uh, that enable us to um, conduct our work in as intelligence based and intelligence focused a way possible. So we're taking the the fight for clean sports to the dopers and to those who supply banned substances uh, rather than reacting to their behaviour. We are actively seeking out people who are supplying these substances to sports, and we're in uh, we're, we're a much better place to do effective work in that area now um, on the back of agreements like this.
0: And so this should be quite reassuring for those clean athletes who are out there and wondering what is happening in the fight against doping and sometimes uh, I've received comments from athletes who feel that they're, you know, the clean athletes are the ones who suffer but this sounds like a very positive step
3: it, it is yes, and I think one of the one of the fundamentals with um, antidoking work is to um, understand where um, prohibited substances are coming from because if, if you if you uh, attack a problem at the source that's much more efficient than uh, attacking a problem at the other end of the, of, of, of the spectrum, which is the user um, now we do a lot of work in respect of users um, and um, some work in respect of those who supply those users but Agreements like this really give us us a a, a valuable tool to get to the source of supply of prohibited drugs. Um, We know that the unlawful um, sale of of prohibited substances in the UK is is a big problem. Um, And this agreement gets us one step closer to understanding more about that and being able to do something about it.
0: That was Graham Arthur, the Director of Legal at anti Doping, talking about the memorandum of understanding signed this week between NHS Protect and anti Doping. We're now going to move away from the fight against doping and we're going to focus on people fighting each other. What I'm referring to is the sport of mixed martial arts, which has been growing in popularity around the world and particularly in Canada, where up until recently there was no legislation to govern the regulation of the sport. Someone who knows a lot about this is Leif Kafour, Principal Managing Director of Lucentum Sport Entertainment Law in Toronto, who's also served as General Counsel for the Canadian Association of Sport Kickboxing since 2007. So Leif, can you tell us a bit about the background behind the legislation in Canada?
4: Like other jurisdictions, um, combative sports including karate and taekwondo um, and now mixed martial arts has been a, a, a sport or activities that have been gaining popularity uh, throughout Canada for quite some time. Um, it's it's good to note that a province like Quebec, who is the province just east of Ontario, um, it has a well-known um, fighting culture and it's no coincidence that someone like uh, GSB is from Quebec and is a Montreal person. It's a, just a great tradition of athletics, in particular uh, boxing and kickboxing. Um, the legal landscape is, so there's, there's this idea that there's a greater development and awareness of combative sports. The challenge is that our legal framework, um, in terms of how it was laid out, was you know, based on the criminal law. Um, now, in Canada, uh, the criminal law is dealt with federally. So you have one document, one code that is, uh, governs everywhere in the country and all the territories, all the provinces and territories, unlike the United States, where criminal law is set on a state basis. So you have this situation where uh, boxing was the one combative sport that was exempt from pugilistic or combative sport. It was the one sport that was carved, an exception was carved out, and it's very clear, both on the wording of the criminal code, this is the previous Section 83 of the Criminal Code of Canada, that says uh, the amateur boxing and the, the way it describes it is really the only exception to the prize fighting requirement. So the idea is, as a state, we didn't want people engaging in underground types of fight where harm could be... Um, envisioned upon the participants. And so uh, the general rule in the 1800s was zero. You couldn't have prize fighting. And then in the 1900s, there was one exception that was carved out for boxing. And so from that time until now, it left um, Canadian jurisdictions in a lot of limbo. So you had a lot of these folks, a lot of Canadians uh, or Ontarians who were engaging in combative sports. And so when they went to get these fights sanctioned, they would have to come into contact with the athletic commission. And typically, the Boxing Commission, the Athletic Commission, was regulated on the provincial level. And so, you know, they would approach and say, we'd like to have this event. It's a kickboxing competition. And they would say, they, they would be told, no, you can't do it because it does, we will not sanction these events. So what ended up happening is that a lot of uh, Canadian fighters would go to places like Quebec, where there was sort of a more liberal interpretation of it, or they would go into the United States, into neighboring states, which would be, in the case of Ontario, places like Michigan or New York State, to take these fights. Again, largely underground, largely unregulated. Uh, The promoters uh, and the athletes, There was a lot of difficulties in terms of figuring out experience levels as well as weight classes. So you saw lots of things happening that, you know, were happening. You know, people were trying to have the the events in in proper ways, but as oftentimes the case in every sport, you know, there can be an underground element to facilitate part of the operational cost to get these events off the ground. So the real change now is trying to have an event in which, you know, it recognizes that people were doing these activities. And more importantly, there were a lot of organizations saying, you know, we'd like to, there's a way of doing this in a transparent way. And so I think if you go to the UFC model, and this is one of the things that UFC did, they said, well, let's, let's just shed some light on what's already happening. And, you know, we'd like to create transparency. We'd like to create rules, procedures, and protocols so that these events can be, Uh, minimise in terms of their risk to the participants. Um, And this took a long time. The the recent development in Ontario in terms of the passing of the new piece of legislation which would amend the old Section 83 basically allows um, events like taekwondo, uh, karate, mixed martial arts specifically to be under the purview or another exception to the price fighting legislation. And so, I mean, it's so unusual because you have these events that were in theory illegal, some of them were Olympic events. So it really did show, it did show, like technically speaking, Taekwondo and karate were, were illegal based on um, the definition in the old Section 83. And so you can see obviously that how can you have an Olympic event that Canadians are sent to participate in? Like, for example, Canada won a medal in, um, in wrestling. We've done quite well in wrestling uh, and in judo and still technically not the... Uh, in line with what the criminal code says, so in many ways, uh, this uh, codification just gives certainty to what was already being done, but it also created a very, created a very specific exception for mixed martial arts, and it, it, it said that this is, you know, what uh, Parliament would have intended, based on the changing needs uh, and reflecting desires of people in terms of how they value and define
0: sport. So, who will be responsible for sanctioning the bouts? or the activities uh, such as sports like judo, karate, jiu-jitsu, and mixed martial arts?
4: Well, judo was, jiu-jitsu wasn't one of the ones that were, were enumerated in terms of an exception, but it's not, very, it's not very clear right now. It's not clear right now in terms of how the implementation will work, and I suspect what will happen is it needed to start off on the federal side because, again, that's, that's the criminal law, and really it's important because if you were convicted of that offense, you could go to jail. Right. And, you know, it could be a criminal conviction. So now that that change has taken place, um, I think what will happen is it will go back to a similar model that was implemented through boxing in which there will be an athletic commission that uh, that clearly monitors these areas. And there's two areas you have to keep in mind. One is the professional side and the other is the amateur side. So there's always going to be a distinction between the two. Um, And within each province, the ministry that manages these events will demarcate it based on a professional event versus an amateur event. Um, And, you know, this is something that needs to be clarified in the next uh, weeks and months ahead in terms of what the mechanism will be. But the most important thing is that there is the, uh, now that the law has changed, it needs to be rolled out with government, with the provincial organizations that would be regulating these as well as law enforcement, for them to figure out who are legitimate and sanctioned people uh, that can now approach the Athletic Commission and get these uh, events sanctioned and who are not, because there's still going to be, a situation where there are going to be people who don't want to comply with, for example, the protocols around concussion and performance-enhancing drugs, like the regular things that we would see as a part of a legitimate sporting organization.
0: Therefore, would you expect to see an introduction of a mixed martial arts governing body, perhaps?
4: I think it's possible. It, it's, it, it's, it's definitely going to be something that's going to go from the provincial level, and they will be in athletic commissions. Whether or not it becomes a governing body specifically for that event it would depend. I think what will happen now is on the provincial side, on the amateur side, you'll have a what we call provincial sporting organizations, which are non-for-profits, that will be involved in... Uh, so if any smaller organization would like to have an event, they would have to approach that um, amateur regulatory body, and that body would be a provincial organization. So meaning that it would be funded by the government, it would be overviewed by the government, it wouldn't be a private body, and they would be able to sanctify the event, um, and corresponding on the professional side, it would function, I suspect, similar to the way that boxing functions uh, in terms of making sure that uh, their rules and regulations are in place about parity in the fights and concussion management and the, the presence of uh, medical officials to make sure the events run smoothly.
0: That was Leif Kafour from Lucentum Sports Entertainment Law in Toronto, talking about the MMA legislation that's been passed in Canada. And finally, on this week's Law and Sport podcast, we have Daniel G, a senior associate at Phil Fisher Waterhouse. Daniel is an authority figure on football finance and football regulatory matters. Daniel is going to be giving us a background as to the dismissed Malaga appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Daniel, can you tell us about the facts of the case and what happened in the appeal?
5: More or less, what um, has happened um, is part of a a long running um, dispute between UEFA and Malaga. Um, It it relates really to UEFA's wider licensing and FFP Licensing document, which uh, among other things um, ensures that clubs, if they want to play in European competition, um, pay and settle their their debts um, on a timely basis and primarily that's the the background and the basis for what what happened and um, a number of months ago now, probably the best part of i think it was i think it was come september last um, uh, last year we had a situation whereby um UEFA brought proceedings against Malaga and a number of other clubs, but primarily Malaga, um, for not paying um, um, a selection of either uh, the tax authorities, uh, players or other clubs for monies that were outstanding. And that came to a head, um, I think, towards uh, what came to a head today, really, after an initial decision by the UEFA club financial control body, which sanctioned uh, Malaga initially, by um, uh, giving them a two-year ban from playing in UEFA competition for the next time, the next two times that they actually qualify, as well as a three hundred thousand euro fine. Initially, there was an in, um, I think initial sanctions which actually withheld prize money, but that prize money was initially well then subsequently provided. And so the situation we're left with now um, is that CAS has effectively upheld UEFA's uh, initial decision um, and has banned uh, Malaga. From competing in next year's um, Europa League and the three hundred thousand euro ban, also fine, rather still um, still um, applies.
0: And am I right that um, UEFA took some action before? So it was originally they were going to be banned for two uh, two UEFA competitions over that over that four year period, but because um, they settled their debts that were due or their payables, that it was reduced to one.
5: Correct. So what what initially occurred was there were there were two actions brought by UEFA and in the, in the interim, one was the initial um, um, overdue payables, and then subsequently, um, in the with the next set of um, licensing requirements that was due to be provided to UEFA, UEFA saw that there was um, a second set of overdue payables that um, Malaga hadn't paid, and Malaga contested the first set all the way to CAS. Um, but then subsequently paid the second set um, that UEFA was concerned about, which meant that the second potential year of the ban was um, was uh, taken away by UEFA because they were satisfied that those overdue payables had been paid, which then just left this initial um, one-year sanction, which has now been upheld by, by CAS today.
0: And what message did this give out to other clubs that are either competing in or looking to compete or hoping to compete in UEFA competitions?
5: Well, we've had situations before um, where clubs have been um, banned from playing, uh, participating in future European competitions because of overdue payables. But I think the, the interesting uh, message that it sends out is that Malaga is probably one of the most high-profile um, clubs to have been banned um, to date and that ban being upheld. And what it now means with the the um, the start of the break even criteria part of the FFP um, assessment coming into play this summer, but um, that everybody realises, and if they don't realise, they now do that UEFA is going to come down hard on um, clubs that um, are breaching the, the FFP rules, and the FFP rules now including uh, break even come this uh, come this summer period.
0: So they're going to be taking things very they're going to be taking it very seriously from now on.
5: Exactly, and um, I think come probably, and I'm writing an article which hopefully we'll, um, we'll post on Dorman Sports soon as well, um, that the next sanctioning um, uh, sets for um, breaching the break-even criteria will probably occur um, next summertime, most likely or, uh, springtime. And uh, that would be the first set of really interesting decisions as to um, how clubs finances are actually forensically looked at by UEFA and how these decisions are actually um, come to.
0: That's going to be very interesting To, 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 to I look forward to receiving that and uh, taking a look because I know that one of the, the feelings is that um, obviously the, the clubs are going to go and bring in some of the best accounting minds to, to, to work ways around the regulations. I know that a lot of lawyers including yourself <laughs> have been taking a close very close look at this um, so it's going to be very interesting to, to to see how how much time they spend in analysing the accounts.
5: I think the the, the interesting point will also be the um, the time and money spent on the appeals because that will be when um, it will come to the fore as to how UEFA are effectively sanctioning on the basis of if they, you know, if a club falls uh, five million euros over the acceptable losses allowed, does that mean that they'll only get um, a fine? Does it mean that they'll not have players registered? Does it mean they'll have points deducted? And it's sort of the, the sliding scale or rather the, the climbing scale as to what what does or what will take what will it take for UEFA to actually ban someone for break even um purposes for the, the amount of um for the amount of loss that they're making. And I think that's gonna be the interesting sort of jurisprudence effectively of CAS and of of um, of UEFA in the next year or so.
0: That was Daniel G from Phil Fisher Waterhouse talking about the dismissed appeal by Malaga to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Well, that's it from the Law and Sport podcast this week. Thank you for tuning in.